0: Welcome to 1001 Radio Crime Solvers Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we want 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to be your favorite place to go to enjoy a great mix of vintage detective shows from the golden age of radio. The scripts were great, the action was hot, and even the old commercials are enjoyable. And now, another episode of 1001 Radio Crime Solvers is ready to go. Enjoy!
1: Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time, a nervous breakdown and a driving rain. A cape with a high collar and a tiny sliver of glass led me from the ballet and a beautiful dancer to the edge of a cliff and death. It happened like this.
2: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The high Collared Cape. <laughs>
0: Ah,
1: nothing like a drink and a good book on a rainy night. Mm -hmm. And what a night! (sighs) Oh no! All right, all right. Don't sprain your finger.
3: I'm sorry to intrude on you this time at night, but I, I may have waited too long already. Yeah,
1: well, look, miss, my office hours my are nine poor to...
3: Uh, I felt something dreadful was going to happen to him, and now, now I'm sure of it. You must find him for me. The poor lady, man... Lady, wait a
1: minute. Hold uh, it, will you? Who is Andre? Uh, for that matter, who are you?
3: I, I am Vivian Ordway, prima ballerina, ballet du monde.
1: Prima ballerina? The
3: Empressario of the company, my dear, dear old friend, my, my teacher, the, the man who's been like a father to me. That is Andre. Andre Le We must help him at yeah, once.
1: well, listen, Miss Ordway, why His don't you... Heart- j- well, Mr.
3: Marlowe, I, I feared for some time that Andre was on the brink of losing his mind. Yeah, I can understand it. You see, he's a genius, tormented by a thousand frustrations. He will never dance. He is been crippled, but he is consumed with a passion for dancing and drives himself to express his genius through the clumsy feet of water.
1: Yeah, well, that's very interesting. You've no idea, but I don't see why you came to me tonight, Miss Ordway. What can I do?
3: Help me to find him. Yesterday, so something else happened to Andre. I don't know what, but it upset him. Then today at noon, when this awful rain started... He disappeared and... Oh, good heavens. Huh? Five past eight. Yeah, what about it? I'll be late for the performance. Here, take this ticket and please come to the theater, Mr. Marlowe. I beg you. I'll pay you anything you ask. Only, only promise me you'll come. Well, I... Please, please.
1: Okay, Miss Ordway. I'll be there as soon as I can. A ballerina swept out of my apartment like a frightened whirlwind. As I got dressed all over again for an evening ballet, which I needed like acute appendicitis. I saw that the ticket she'd left was number 27J at the Great Arts Theater, showing Ballet of the World, sponsored by one Mrs. Imogene Wyatt. Now I got to the lobby, half-soaked near the end of the second act, when an icy usherette shoved the program at me and hush-hushed me inside. The audience was a small cluster of arty diehards down front, which left me in 27J feeling like Midway Island, my client, Vivian Ordway, was the whole show. When I saw the finale coming, I slipped down a side aisle and into the wings, just in time to catch a beef at the stage door between a long, wolf-faced intruder and a pudgy doorman. The
4: ain't here, Scully Haskell. But even if she was, you wouldn't get in. She left strict orders. <coughs> You're finished. Now get out and stay out. Okay? okay, but let me tell you something. I broke my back getting publicity for that instead of widow in this office... In the Gene is going to be sorry she fired me. I'm going to see for it but personally.
5: Get out of the theater, Scully.
4: You're nuts. So you and this whole troop of stuck up grasshoppers. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mr.
4: Marlins.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Come this way to my door. You know. Tell me,
1: have you heard from Andre LeDoux, Vivian? No,
3: no, nothing. But I did remember something that, that may help. Oh? Andre once mentioned that he had a friend here here in Los Angeles. Oh. A Mr. Baker who who lived at the Winthrop Arms, the, the Winthrop Hotel, the, the Winthrop something. Uh-huh. Like Come in, Mr. Marlowe. Thank you. Andre may be there. I'm I'm grasping at straws, I know. But if if his mind is gone and, and he's lost, I'm... I'm so afraid for him. Oh,
1: now take it easy, honey. Take it easy. Vivian,
6: hmm. is there news of Andrei?
3: Oh, no, George, nothing. Mr. Marlowe here is going to find him for us. He's a private detective. Oh, I see.
6: Wonderful. I am George Melnikov. Glad to know you. Vivian, I'll be at the hotel. If I can help, please do call on me. And, oh, my dear, you shone as beautifully tonight as the full moon. Ka ah. krasybue, Luna. Ah. We mere stars were hardly visible beside you. До ah. свидания,
1: Fast man with a compliment, huh?
3: Oh, right? He's very sweet.
1: Yeah, what hotel did he mean?
3: Uh, the Wilshire Gardens, most of the ballet stay there.
1: Oh. How about you, Miss Otway?
3: Uh, I have a house, uh, a studio on Lookout Mountain, 857. 857. Yes. Can I reach you there? No, no, I'm going to wait here in the theater. If Andre should remember and come back, I, I'd want to be here. He's a very sick man. <laughs>
1: After I left the theater, a quick check in a phone book showed a Winthrop Arms Apartment Hotel on Havenhurst Drive. It's just below Fountain Avenue. And when I got there, I found the name Baker stuck over the mailbox to apartment 1A. I went inside and up to the door. Yes? Andre Ledoux? What do you want? Well, your friends at the theater are worried about you.
7: My friends? I have no friends. George
1: Melikoff's worried about you.
7: George Melikoff, my friends, worried about
1: So is Vivian Ordway. Oh, Vivian? Uh-huh.
7: Oh, that dear child. What will become of her now?
1: Well, what do you mean? What's happened? Who are you? Miss Ordway sent me to find you. She's waiting for
7: you at the theater. Waiting at the theater? Why? Why? The ballet is finished. What's that? Mrs. Imogene Wyatt withdraws her support completely. There is no more ballet du Monde. I'm penniless. And all our work has been for nothing. I try to reason with her, but it was hateful, hateful. Afterward I drove here on the dark street, the rain slashing, clawing at me, rain. Andre, where
1: is your friend, Mr. Baker? Mm-hmm. This place is packed in mothballs.
7: Oh, he is in Europe. It is all right that I am here. He sent me the keys long ago. Said I could use his apartment and his car. I came here to be alone, to think. My head, my head aches. aches.
1: Andre, what time was it when you left Mrs. Wyatt's yesterday?
7: Do you remember? Uh, I can't remember. Only that it was dark. Very dark. And it was such a difficult drive. Yeah. Tomorrow she will notify her lawyer to alter the papers and order that imbus I wish she were dead. You hear me? I wish that Imogen Wyatt were dead.
1: What was that? Stay where you are. What is it? Do
7: you see anything?
1: No. Now look. Andre, about your headache. Hmm? Wouldn't you like to see a doctor?
7: Doctor? No, no, I'll be all right. I am all right, understand? Yes,
1: yeah, sure, sure. Well, do me a favor for your own sake. Mm. Stay here tonight, inside. I want to check a couple of things, and then I'll be back.
7: Yes, I'll stay. Where else would I go? Now? <laughs>
1: I left. I was convinced that if the belly impresario hadn't already slipped his trolley, another slight bump would do it. But two things bothered me. So first, I walked around to the window again, but any trace of an eavesdropper had been washed away by the rain. Item number two was the strong imprint the drive home in the rain had made on Andre's troubled mind. I wanted to know why. The garage was under the building on the far side. The door was unlocked, and a small light burned in the back. I finally found the car asleep close to the ground Hudson registered to Orland Baker and found it for the first grim discrepancy. The left headlight and fender were still streaked with rain marks, but the right had been wiped clean. And when I reached in and switched on the lights, that cinched it. The glass in the right headlight had been replaced. It was brand new.
5: Hey, there. What are you up to? Just
1: testing my friend's car. I may borrow it. You the attendant?
5: Uh, That's right. You in here last night tinkering around with this here car?
1: No. Maybe it was Mr. Ledoux. He had it out last night.
5: Oh, no, it wasn't him. That was somebody else. Uh, I heard a noise. See, when I come out of my back room, that, this guy beat it. He took off like a scared turkey. He had a big black cape on with a high collar, flapping in the wind.
1: You better watch it, old timer. That stuff's getting your eyesight.
5: Mm, Looks like a cape to me. Yeah. Well... I looked around, but I didn't see no harm done, so I went back to my room. Uh, uh, What time was all this? Oh, way past midnight. Maybe one, two o'clock. I didn't pay much attention. Uh (laughs) Uh, By the way, Mr. Keffel and Nip. No, thanks. Mm. I'd like to use a phone. You got one? Oh, sure, 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 back in the corner. I'll show you. I'll
1: find it. The call is personal. Do you mind?
5: Me? I should say not. Help yourself, Sonny. I'm too old to even be curious.
1: My first call was to a desk sergeant in the police traffic bureau. When I identified myself and asked about a hit-and-run accident, possibly on Fountain, sometime before midnight yesterday, there was a pause while he checked the record. And then...
6: On the button, Mr. Marlowe. We identified him by his Blue Shield medical card. Oh? Oh? One Lyle Uh Kretschauer, apparently stepped out from between parked cars on Fountain Avenue between Orange Drive and Roxbury, was struck by an unidentified vehicle at about 11.10 last night. Mm. Condition serious. Now, what do you know about this, Mr. Marlowe?
1: I'll get in touch with you later, Sergeant. Thanks. Stepped out from between parked cars. It's Philip Marlowe. I want to talk to Vivian Ordway.
4: Oh, hang on a second, Mr. Marlowe. She's right here.
1: Okay.
3: Have you found him? Is Andre all
1: right? Yeah, for the present. But listen, Vivian, i got to talk to Imogene Wyatt. Where does she live?
3: Oh, Mrs. Wyatt. Yeah. We, uh, in Beverly Hills. Let me think it's
1: 21 Cami Hotel. 21 Cami. Meet me there right away, will you? I may have a couple of rough answers for you, baby.
3: But th- I'm still in costume. That doesn't matter. I- oh, all right, I- I put something on over it. I'll be there just as soon as I can.
1: Between slick streets and visibility zero, it was a solid half-hour drive from the Winthrop Bombs out to the Swank Cameo Terrace. But when I pulled up at number twenty-one, I wondered what the wealthy widow had spent her money on. The house was so small it must have been shingled with twenty-dollar bills to meet the zoning restrictions. I just started up the soggy gravel path toward the door when it came. As I started to run for the house, a green convertible I hadn't noticed before roared to life suddenly and disappeared down a side street. But I didn't have time to worry about it. Inside, I. I found Mrs. Wyatt on the dining room floor, fighting a losing battle with the distance to the telephone.
8: The accident last night. I. I was going to ruin it all. Now, Andrea, let
1: <laughs> She was dead. I looked through the rest of the small and now silent house in a hurry, but found nothing more constructive than the rear door wide open. I got back to the living room just in time to see my client Vivian Ordway, bizarre, in a short, frothy ballet skirt and long white hose, standing in the front door.
3: Something's wrong, isn't it
1: It's one way to put it. How'd you get here, Vivian? in the cab What do you know that drives a green convertible
3: green. With, uh, Scully Haskell, a uh, publicity man, but why?
1: The guy I saw on a beef at the theater tonight.
3: What's happened?
1: Imogene Wyatt was just shot to oh, death. And that puts two items of business up on deck. First, a check called Andre Ledoux.
3: Andre? Why Andre? On
1: the off chance that he can drive faster than I can. After that, a personal call on Mr. Haskell. You can fill that one in yourself.
3: Marlowe, Andre couldn't have. He couldn't have we'll done.
1: We'll see. Now, hang on tight, baby. Let's get it over with.
2: In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, the great international comedian Beatrice Lilly will be Bing Crosby's guest on CBS this Wednesday night. The CBS Bing Crosby show always guarantees enjoyment. So be listening when B. Lilly joins Bing on most of these same CBS stations this Wednesday night. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe in tonight's story, The High-Colored Cape.
1: Made a cockeyed picture. A beautiful ballerina miles away from the stage, yet in full color drenched costume and gaping through tear streaked grease paint. But sudden death. It's was a good time for me to start checking up. Andre Ledoux, the high strung impresario, was first. If he was still at the apartment, I could cross him off as having done it personally. Sorry, wrong number.
3: Marlowe, he was home, wasn't he, Andre? I mean, you couldn't suspect him. Marlowe, why, Andre is the sweetest man in the world. Take it
1: easy, honey. I didn't say Ledoux did it. And his being home doesn't say he didn't. People sometimes pay other people to do their dirty work for him, you know.
3: Just what are you trying to say? You
1: hired me to find Ledoux, and I did. But Also, I found he was suffering from shock, and has been since last night when Mrs. Wyatt told him she was going to fold the show.
3: For the show
1: yeah yeah and that vivian would ruin him
3: and half a dozen more i could not name you're
1: so right so you've all got plenty of motive but
3: what about haskell we know he hated mrs wyatt isn't revenge motive revenge and the fact that you saw his car why do you insist on defending him i
1: don't only there's another angle it's called hit and run and i know that it ties in tight with ladue mrs wyatt and the actual killer
3: hit and run i i, I don't understand well
1: neither do i yet now, look, do you know where Scully Haskell lives? No. Where does he hang out?
3: Oh, sometimes at, at the bar at Wilshire Gardens Hotel.
1: Okay, I'll try it. Now you go back to your place up in the hills. I'll find it when I got some answers. Now, hurry up and get out of here, will you? Somebody might have heard the shot and called... it. Somebody did hear the shot. Go on, get out.
0: Yes, but Marla... No butts. Go on, Vivian. Get in the I, cab
1: and go straight home. Do your crying there. All right. Good. I'm trying to...
4: Hey, hey, Vivian, you forgot your coat. Vivian, you... you...
1: Oh, no, baby. You forgot your cape for a long second i just held it tight and stared high elizabethan collar enough gathered cloth to rig old Ironsides. sides it could have been what the garage attendant thought he had seen running away from the car to had used but the garage attendant could have been mistaken too i told myself that leaping high to conclusions was strictly for ballet dancers i jammed the cape into a small bundle and leapt via the service entrance just as the police sirened up I took the great circle route back to my car, tossed the cape on the seat next to me, and drove fast for the bar at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel. It was a kind of flattering pink-mirrored place where the hors d'oeuvre had long ago replaced the pretzel. But Haskell wasn't in sight. And the only person around who could possibly be of any help to me, was the delicate George Millikoff. Mr. Marlow? have you seen Vivian? I am beside myself with worry.
6: She's all right, Millikoff. She's not, I know. It is Monsieur Ledoux that she still worries about him. Yeah,
1: him and a little bit more, George. Now tell me, you know where I can find Scully Haskell?
6: Why, yes, I do. He was just here for a drink. Where'd he go? You're being very brusque, Mr. Marlow. Being very what? You're brusque.
1: Yeah, well, now look, George, without grand jetting out of your satin loafers, get this. There's been a murder, and Vivian's ended up to a pretty fluff skirt. A
6: murder? How is Vivian concerned?
1: Come on, Butch, let's get out of here.
6: Where are we going, Mr. Marlowe?
1: Out to my car, where we can talk. The rain stopped. Come on. Over here.
6: You, uh, you said somebody was murdered. Who was that?
1: Mrs. Wyatt, she was shot, and it might have been Haskell.
6: Because she discharged him?
1: Maybe. Or maybe something more complicated, like a hit and run accident that belongs to Ledoux but somebody wants to cover. Does that make any sense to you? Here's a car.
6: No. Should it?
1: No. What's more, it shouldn't to Vivian either.
6: What are you getting at?
1: There isn't time to explain. Call it thinking out loud. Thinking about this cape, for example, that belongs to Vivian, and about the testimony of a whiskey garage attendant. All of which makes me hope real hard that Haskell's the boy.
6: More thinking out loud?
1: Yeah, maybe. Now, look, where can I find Haskell?
6: The Paradise Court Motel on Vine. He has a bungalow there. Number three. Oh, thanks, thanks.
1: Now, if you're really worried about Vivian, George, go on over to a place on Lookout Mountain Road. She's not in good shape. Here, take this cape with you. ooh,
6: Uh, what? Why, you cut yourself. Your finger's bleeding.
1: Yeah. And a sliver of glass, George. Glass that could have come from a broken headlight, huh?
6: From a broken what? What are you talking about, Mr. Marlowe?
1: The Benefit of the doubt, George. <coughs> Keeps getting harder to give it away. Bring this back to Vivian, will you? Tell her she left it at Mrs. Wyatt's, and then I'm positive Haskell's our man. So long, George. <laughs> Not quite. The name's Marlowe. I want to talk to you, Haskell.
4: Don't waste your breath, Skip Chaser. I'm broken. I'm going to stay broke until the first of next month. After that, you can get in line. Who are you funny for? The finance company?
1: Imogene Wyatt's dead, Haskell.
4: What did you say? It...
1: What's a gun for? Your lousy temper. Get back.
4: Hey, wait a minute. I saw you at the theater tonight. Yeah,
1: and I heard you, which puts me out in front. Now do we talk, Haskell?
4: For what?
1: Mrs. Wyatt's murder. You were sloppy.
4: And you're off your nut. I didn't shoot her. I didn't even...
1: Slips, huh, kid?
4: Oh, I, I know she was shot. Doesn't prove I did it. Come
1: on, why'd you kill Mrs. Wyatt? I didn't. How'd you know she was shot?
4: Because it happened just as so I got out of my car and started toward her place. I was going up there to read her off. The shot scared me away. Use your head, Marlowe. I was sore, but I didn't kill her.
1: No, but interference on that hit and run you were covering was plenty of reason.
4: What are you talking about, hit and run? Hit and run!
1: Don't move, Haskell.
4: Uh, nuts. Come on in, don't move. Ah, nuts. I said don't move!
9: Congratulations, handsome. That's just what I had in mind.
1: Close the door and stand still.
9: Sure. Now what? The name's Nancy Connor. Occupation? Ex-friend of the unconscious. <laughs> Don't look so worried, handsome. I'm on your side. I had something in mind exactly like that left cross you just threw. South cold, hmm? Huh?
1: Yeah. What's your beef?
9: I took this louse to a party with me last night, and he got so stinking drunk that I'm still apologizing to people.
1: He was with you last night?
9: mm mm-hmm. Me and a couple of fifths of bourbon. From 8.30 till 5 a.m. And on Malibu.
1: He never left? Uh, not for a second.
9: The loud mouth was positive. Nobody could get along without him. Uh, what's that got to do with you?
1: Too much. Tell Haskell I'll be in touch, will you? I gotta run now. Uh, oh.
9: What are you looking at? It's just a program from the ballet, isn't it? Hmm? Yeah, yeah. Well, Haskell has them all over the place, after all. He yeah, gets... sure, sure, sure. So.
1: Hmm? Oh, so like I said, Nancy, I gotta run. <laughs> it was 15 stop and go minutes from Haskell's place to the Hollywood Hills, and another five screeching up the paved snake that was Lookout Mountain Road. Finally, I was there out of my car and running toward number 857, which was a collection of windows in a rustic log frame, half jutting out into space. And around in the back, there was a wooden sun deck. Below it, on either side, huge rocks that line the edge of the cliff. Directly below, only the dark, bottomless canyon. On the end of the porch near me, there was a long flight of stairs. I started up one careful, noiseless step at a time. My hand tight around the 38. Suddenly, in the weak light of the thin slice of moon, I saw Vivian Ordway, her back to the flimsy porch rail, her face an ugly knot
10: of terror. No, George,
1: no. Only inches no. away from her and brandishing the no gun he had used to kill, to kill Mrs. Me. Wyatt was listen, the half-crazed listen, answer to everything.
8: Listen.
6: The delicate
1: Please.
6: Melikoff. It's too late, Vivian. Marlowe knows this cape was what the garage attendant saw. And do you know how? Because of a stupid little thing. A sliver of glass that was caught in it, which came from the broken headlight that the wearer of the cape replaced. The wearer who was covering up Andre Ledoux's hit-and-run accident so that he could have the pig where he wanted him.
3: You're wrong, George. Marlow is after Haskell. He thinks Haskell killed Mrs. White.
6: He only hopes that. And he'll find out, one way or another, that the beautiful ballerina is guilty. Then he'll be forced to come back here after you.
3: But, George, I'm not guilty! Of
6: course you're not, Vivian. I am. The cape is mine, not yours. You only used it tonight. That's the only thing he doesn't know, and never will. Because you will have killed yourself after confessing to me. No, no. It's the only way, Vivian. You or me. But it's always been that way, hasn't it? Even in the ballet, where one or the other of us had to be starved. Too bad it wasn't
1: I. Yeah, crying shame, Malachi. Oh, oh, get away from that rail, Vivian. We're going to the other
4: end of the porch, Milo. He's
3: going to jump with the... Helicopter, no! Oh, no.
1: It's a great a leap, even for a ballet dancer. Let's get out of here. A long time at police headquarters, but finally all concerned had made their statement law was more or less satisfied. And André Ledoux never knew he'd hit anyone was cleared of hit and run. That left me and the ballerina driving to a friend's house where she was going to spend the night.
3: Phil, I I know you must have had enough of questions and answers, but... But? (laughs) Yes. The reason George killed Mrs. Wyatt. hmm?
1: Well, you see, Vivian, it started last night when George went to see André Ledoux because he was so bitter about his part in the show being cut down. And That was when he saw Andre returning from Mrs. Wyatt, shaken up in and half-dazed.
3: And uh, with a broken headlight and, and other signs of having hit someone, huh? Yeah, yeah.
1: And from there, George thought fast, covered it all up, found out exactly what had happened from this morning's paper, probably, and waited. Ah. But when you hired me tonight, he must have followed me to LaDues and overheard Andre tell me that Mrs. Wyatt was going to pull out.
3: Oh, so he went to her, tried to stop her, and, and, and couldn't, hmm? Yeah. Anything else? Oh, yes. Oh, one thing. Oh, that's the house there, did the white. Oh, okay. What made you hurry back to my place from Haskell's motel when, when time meant so much?
1: A hunch, honey. As I was leaving Scully Haskell's, I saw a stack of ballet programs on a table in his living room. The cover on it was very interesting. It features you and the picture of George, majestic in his high collared cape.
3: So that was it.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was it.
3: Good night, Phil. Will you call me tomorrow sometime, please? I'll call you. Tomorrow, Vivian. Good. Ah, It's a nice night, Phil. And so good to be alive. Well. Good night.
1: And I drove straight home in the quiet, empty hours Through the quiet, empty streets Thinking all the way about ballet Which to me had always been something very delicate You know, for the long hairs, strictly the oddy side (laughs) And I thought about the people I'd met who were connected with it ballerina with a lot of courage when courage counted. The high-strung Andre Ledoux. Haskell the muscle man and... George. As vicious as anything I'd ever met on Skid Row. And I was still thinking about them when I got out of my car. But then for the first time I noticed a little white envelope on the seat next to me. It had my name on it. And inside was a... a, a ticket for tomorrow's matinee. Same seat I had before. Yeah, well, I figured I'd go. You know those those leaps they do. They're pretty good. What do you call them? Uh, entre entre. You no, know, that toujours. Yeah, they're pretty good.
2: Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman McDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in our cast were Georgia Ellis, Edgar Barrier, Elliot Reed, Lou Krugman, Wilms Herbert, and Michael Ann Barrett. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says...
1: This time it was a fishy horse play from a red-headed beauty wild about ponies past a black-bearded sailor who bled to death on a racing form to a neck-and-neck finish over a wandering seahorse worth 50,000 bucks. And you know what? I was the jockey.
2: Remember, every Wednesday night, CBS brings you Groucho Marx with his wonderful quiz, You Bet Your Life. It's one of the brightest, most spontaneous, most genuinely funny shows on the air, so be listening this Wednesday night on CBS. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now stay tuned for Pursuit, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, where Burns and Allen are heard every Wednesday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
1: Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the grave. Pr- this time it was a fishy horse play from a red-headed beauty past a black-bearded sailor to a neck-and-neck finish over a wandering seahorse worth 50,000 bucks. And I was the jockey. It happened like this.
2: From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Seahorse Jockey.
10: You know, Mr. Marlowe, when you came in today, I said to myself, I said, it's a funny thing. You've been getting your haircuts here now for six, seven years. But but I never found out how you vote, Republican or Democrat.
1: Well, I like to think that's my business. And, and, and another,
10: another thing, never did you tell me if you're for the Marshall Plan or against the Marshall Plan.
1: Well, the Marshall Plan... And,
10: is- and for the California's governor next fall?
1: Well, there's no doubt in my yeah. mind and, and the income
10: tax... Uh, sit back, please. Yeah, well. now, now, the income tax is fair or it's not fair.
1: Well, eminently... Now, now
10: how, how come How come all this stuff... I don't know what is your opinion.
1: I can't imagine.
10: Uh, of course, my opinion, I tell people. I say political party is a matter of getting to... Oh, excuse me.
1: Saved by the bell.
10: Oh, uh, Alvin's Barbershop? Uh, Alvin speaking. Oh? Mr. Marlowe? Yes, he's right here. Uh, hold on, please. It's for you, Mr. Marlowe. Always interruption. <laughs> Ain't it? <laughs> it's so
1: right. For 60, but never mind. Hi,
4: hello.
11: Mr. Marlowe, this is Mrs. Lola Demarest speaking. Oh? Thank goodness, I've finally located you. Now, you're to come out to my place at once Pacific Palisades, 13120 Tower Road, and your plane leaves in two Why? hours. Uh, now, but wait a, a minute. What plane, here?
1: Mrs. Demarest? Why? What's this all about? The
11: seahorse. I'm going to sell it, Mr. Marlowe. My mind's made up.
1: The sea witch?
11: A seahorse. Marlowe. It's a brooch six inches high and set with precious stones, which a San Francisco dealer is anxious to pay $5,000 for.
1: Well, look, Mrs. Demarest, the I... The
11: dealer is flying to New York tomorrow, Mr. Marlowe, and also my doctors say I'm living by sheer willpower
10: alone. Hence I can my hear decisions
11: it. must be made quickly. Now, the terms of the deal are cash, so please be sure that you're armed. And the money will be returned here to my stepdaughter, Jillian Demarest, unfortunately.
1: Oh, you don't approve, huh? No,
11: no. However I'll abide by my late husband's wishes, Jillian is to be provided for. Now, no more questions, sir. Just hurry. You'll be paid handsomely, and when you get here, Mr. Marlowe, use the back porch. I'll be in my bedroom. The other doors are locked.
1: You're alone, Mrs. Demarest? No servants?
11: I'm merely sick. Mr. Marlowe, not dead. And no. since I've just fired Elmer Paris, who was called a lawyer, but it was actually more of a baboon, we'll be able to talk. Now, hurry, Mr. Marlowe. Please be punctual. My new lawyer is due here at 4.30. I'll finish up and be ready for you at exactly 5.00. Is that clear? I've
1: got one question. Were you ever a barber?
11: Goodbye, sir. Goodbye,
1: sir. Well, Alvin, it looks like we'll have to skip that shave.
11: Oh, uh,
10: that's that's too bad, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, like I said, I'm anxious to get your opinions. Opinions are important, huh? Important, Oh, you know? sure, Al, sure. Yeah, I, I mean, the way I look at it, Mr. Marlowe. Alvin! I, uh, yes, Mr. Marlowe?
1: Wipe the lather off. Your chin, not mine. <laughs> Pacific Palisades and my new client's home at 1312 Old Town Road was 40 minutes from L.A. The house was Victorian-style, solid made of wood, two stories high, and squatted close to the edge of a sun-baked cliff, 200 feet above the ocean. I parked behind what must have been the first Pierce Arrow ever made, and started slowly along a gravel path that led to the rear, until I heard it. Inside, I found an old woman whom I figured to be my client, leaning against the half-open kitchen door, sobbing and clenching at the gingham apron she wore like it would keep her from screaming again. Mrs. Demarest, get hold of yourself. What happened?
12: I'm not Mrs. Demarest. Oh, the poor darling. Her heart. She's dead. She's dead. In there, the bedroom. Oh. But who are you?
1: My name's Philip Marlowe. Mrs. Demarest hired me an hour ago. An hour ago. She was a handsome woman.
12: A beautiful woman and a good woman. You. you're the detective, aren't you, about the brooch?
1: Yeah how this happened, Mrs... Uh, Lockfield, no.
12: Miss Bertie Lockfield. Miss
1: Lockfield, were you with her?
12: No, I came over a bit ago. I'm Lola's best friend, you know, her only friend. I came over in my car to cook her some dinner, like I do all the time. I live right by the little cottage at the foot of Old Tower Road, the one with the tall the hedges. The dinner, Miss
1: Lockfield, you were saying?
12: Oh, yes. Well, Mr. Marlowe, can we go back to the living oh, room? Oh, sure,
1: sure. Now, uh, Miss Lockfield, you came over to cook dinner, then what?
12: Well, I looked in on her first, like I do all the time. And since she was asleep, I went to the kitchen and set things going. And
1: then? Oh, here, you better
5: sit down, huh? Oh, thank you.
12: Then I went back to my place, fussed around for 10, maybe 20 minutes. Then I came here again and found what we just saw. That pillow clenched in one hand like she'd wanted to All right, all right. Take something. it easy, Miss Lockfield.
1: <laughs> Try to hold on, huh? Now tell me. You didn't happen to see anything of the new lawyer around, did you?
12: New lawyer? Why, why Lola didn't mention a new lawyer. Uh, He was due here today?
1: Yeah, a half hour ago. Might help if we knew his name.
12: Why, Mr. Marlowe? Mr. Marlowe? Surely you don't think there was, well, foul play?
1: I don't know, Miss Lockfield. For one thing, the position of the pillow seems kind of cockeyed to me.
12: Yes, but who on earth would want to... Oh, no, not Jillian. It couldn't be.
1: Mrs. Demarest was quite clear about Jillian.
12: Jillian oh, hated Lola, Mr. Marlowe, but Jillian isn't a, a killer.
1: Yeah, well, maybe nobody's been killed, but tell me, Miss Lockfield, did this stepdaughter, this Jillian, uh, know that she was getting the money from the brooch?
12: Oh, no, I doubted very much, although she did know that Lola had it, of course, and... And what? And that Lola's money was dwindling, Mr. Marlowe, and that she was selling her possessions one by one.
1: Uh-huh. Therefore, Gillian might think that the seahorse brooch was hers by right of inheritance, huh? Yes. Yeah. Tell me, Miss Lockfield, do you know where Mrs. Demarest kept the brooch?
12: Oh, yes, in the bedroom. I'll show you exactly where. Come. All right. It's behind the portrait of Mr. Demarest and... Oh,
11: the
1: poor, oh,
12: poor
11: come on. Darling. Take it easy,
1: honey, huh? Did you say behind the portrait, that one?
12: Yes. There's a panel in the wall that slides.
0: Uh-huh.
12: Move the picture to your right, Mr. Marlowe. Then pull out on the panel edging. You'd better use the chair.
0: Yeah.
1: <clears throat> to the right. And out on the panel edging, huh?
12: That's it. That's it.
1: See? This velvet case?
12: No, no. Those are earrings. The brooch is much bigger. It's in a silk bag, Mr. Marlowe. Mr. Marlowe, don't you see it?
1: No, and I don't think I will. Miss Lockfield, the velvet case is all there is. The seahorse is gone. I called the law and reported both the theft of the brooch and the death of Mrs. Demarest while Bertie Lockfield prompted over my shoulder. After that, I started through the place looking for anything that could possibly give me a lead on the wandering seahorse. Fifteen minutes later, all I could show for my effort was a telephone number, Surfside 10229. It meant nothing to me except that it was written on a sheet of brown roll-your-own cigarette paper. When I dialed the number and got no answer, I dropped the paper into my pocket. I told Miss Lockfield to wait for the police and headed for town in the first public phone booth. I started through the local classified directory looking for a lawyer named Elmer Paris. I didn't find him. I figured he could be somebody's junior partner. So I began at the top. I scored on my seventh nickel Calder, Kramer, and McDuff. It was the anchor man who answered.
13: Elmer Paris? Yes, we employ a lawyer by that name.
1: One who was fired by Mrs. Lola Demarest early today, Mr. One McDuff?
13: Who ceased working for Mrs. Lola Demarest early today?
1: All right, objection sustained. Tell me, where can I get in touch with Mr. Parris?
13: At his desk here in the office, where he's been all day. Your reason for asking, sir?
1: The answer you just gave me. Now, one last item, Mr. McDuff. Did your firm supply a new lawyer for Mrs. Demarest late today?
13: We did not. And, sir, we never will. Oh? Each lawyer in this office is first a gentleman, second a competent barrister. A belligerent Mrs. Demarest has used for neither. Good day, sir. Good day, sir.
1: That I checked Elmer Paris off my list and went back to the phone book. Gillian Demarest, my late client's stepdaughter, was listed at number 111 Los Amigos Terrace, which a map on the back of the book showed to be just off Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood.
8: Come
0: in.
1: The girl herself replete with old-fashioned. The only thing that was, was red-headed. Maybe 30. And meat and potato curves in either direction. From a waistline that was strictly... Rye crisp over lettuce leaves.
8: Sit down. What's your problem?
1: Well, I uh, got some bad news, Miss Demarest.
8: Don't tell me. It's my income tax. I've been caught lying.
1: It's your stepmother. She's dead, Jill.
8: Oh. That's too bad. Yeah, well,
1: try not to go to pieces, kid, huh?
8: Look, I didn't particularly like Lola Demarest. She didn't particularly like me. So? Why make a thing of it?
1: Because the seahorse brooch has been stolen. Don't try brushing that off, because it was supposed to be sold today with the proceeds to go to you. Proceeds
8: to... You're a liar.
1: Uh Uh-uh, private detective. Hired Jill to fly the brooch to a San Francisco dealer, and I found out it's really worth $50,000. A lot of dough you didn't expect.
8: Okay, Mr. Private Detective. That last crack. It means exactly what? That you could
1: have taken the brooch yourself.
8: Try me again.
1: Surfside, 10229.
8: Stop pushing and start listening. If Lola intended to sell the brooch and give me the money, it was for one reason only. My father wanted it that way. So. So. So do I. And now that you're without a client, maybe you'll work for me. I doubt it. I write and get paid well. Five thousand words a month for a pulp magazine, torrid stories. It figures. Pays off nicely. Be worth your while. Do you want to help me?
1: Suppose you're lying and actually stole the brute yourself, what then?:
8: <laughs> Then you handcuff me to the nearest cop and run for mayor on the let's clean up local crime ticket. Now, is it a deal for say,, one um, percent of the 50,000? if I get it? Zero if I don't.:
1: Five hundred of fun, huh? Mm-hmm. Ah okay, Jill, it's a deal. Good. Mm, and for a starter, do you happen to know who Mrs. Demarest's new lawyer was?
8: New lawyer? I didn't know the old one had been fired. I
1: didn't say he had. Could have quit, you know.
8: Nobody ever quit working for Lola Demarest. It wasn't her nature.
1: No? No.
8: Will you please stop barking at me and go out and bite the guy with the brooch? You uh, look like you could do a good job of it. For 500 bucks.
1: Yeah. But just think of the opposition, Jill. It's snapping at 50 grand. <laughs> Drove back to the foot of Old Tower Road in the smothered and Ivy cottage labeled Miss Bertie Lockfield. I started for the front door, but only got halfway. That'll
14: do nicely. Right where you are. Oh, fine. You're a friend of Bertie Lockfield's or a relative, which
1: A nephew, why?
14: Because nephew. Aunt Bertie's not home, and I want someone responsible to leave a message with.
1: So you go looking for him with a gun, huh? Now listen, baby.
14: Shut I up and try to remember this. Tell your aunt that the new lawyer Mrs. Demarest hired will be in touch with her. Does that make any sense to you?
1: No. Maybe if I knew his name, it would. (laughs) I doubt it.
14: Now, nephew, without any fuss, let me have your car... Now, wait a minute. Come on. You'll find your car a block away from here where I left mine.
1: Give. No. Happy motoring.
14: Thank you, nephew. And don't forget the message...
1: She backed away, again into my car and started it without once taking her dead, fish-cold, gray eyes off me. When she jerked away from the curb, it was too late for me to do anything but swear and start walking to my car. It was where she said it would be, so I got in and sulked as far as the first public telephone. It was time to try Surfside 10229 again. Hello? Hello, I'd like to... Uh, I'd like to talk to... Wait a minute. Is that you, Lieutenant Matthews?
13: Yeah.
1: Marlowe? Yeah, that's right.
13: Oh, that Demarest case, huh? Well, Phil, the coroner thinks it was murder, all right. Suffocated her with a pillow, but they won't be sure till the autopsy report is in.
1: Yeah, wait a minute, You're Matthews. With... Hey, wait a minute, will you? You're at Surfside 10229, right?
13: Yeah. You got this number from Homicide, didn't you?
1: No, I didn't. I got it from a brown cigarette paper I found at Mrs. Demarest. Huh? Now, look, tell me, Matthews, what have you got and where are you?
13: 51 South Monroe Place.
1: 51 South... It's a dead
13: one, Phil. A guy who sported a beard. The name was Paul Crater.
1: Oh, occupation lawyer, right?
0: No, Phil, wrong. The occupation was able-bodied seaman.
2: In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first... Dr. Christian's latest patient comes up with a new problem for the kindly small-town physician this Wednesday, and it's the case of a man who's about to be evicted from the place to which he's come home to die. Add to this, the patient is an exceedingly lively, rip-roaring centurion, and you have the makings of a highly dramatic, amusing yarn. Dr. Christian, starring Gene Hersholt, is heard every Wednesday on most of these same CBS stations. ¶¶ now with our star Gerald Moore the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story the Seahorse Jockey
1: I was 30 minutes getting out to the address Matthews had given me. The neighborhood around Surfside looked like it had been pushed together from scraps that had washed in from the sea. And number 51 Monroe Place was no improvement corroded little frame house surrounded by a picket fence with most of its front teeth missing. I parked in the red glare from the squad car's spotlight and as I walked past the sagging gate I could hear Matthews inside.
0: Oh,
13: hello, Marlowe. Come on in. But don't fall over the late Mr. Paul Crater there. Oh, that's him, huh? Doesn't yeah. look much like a sailor to me, Matthews, in spite of his whiskers. What do you expect, bell-bottom trousers? All right, all right. Those guys wear suits when they're short like anyone else. He was shot twice, Phil. Once in the stomach, once in the chest. Dropped right here in front of the door, huh? Yeah. The way it looked, somebody came up and knocked, and when Crater opened the door, they let him have it. Got a line on him? Well, he was a nice, quiet guy, apparently. Uh-huh. Lived here with his sister, Helen. And as far as we know, they got along fine. We're still trying to locate her. He worked around here someplace, but we don't know where yet. But what about that Demeris business? Oh, that. Well, I... Oh, wait a minute. Oh, okay. Matthews? Yeah, Moni. I see. Jug Nolan. As in uh, J.U.G.? Yeah. Uh-huh. He is? No, uh, you come on back. I'll check him later, personally. Well, Phil, that answers one question anyway. Crater here worked out of a boatyard on Front Street. What was that Nolan, J.U.G., about? Jug Nolan. He's the bird who runs the shipyard. Oh. Mooney says he's a genuine old sea dog from roll-your-owns to... Wait a minute. Did you say roll-your-owns? Yeah.
1: Matthews. How about letting me talk to this Nolan before you and the boys move in? Why? I'd
13: like to check the color of his cigarette papers, and I'll let you know. Well, okay, Marlowe. Only keep your chin in. Maybe Nolan doesn't know anything about what happened to Crater here. Unless he pulled the trigger, huh?
1: I drove through the thick smell of seaweed and dead fish that was front straight for ten blocks. Before I found a battered sign that read Nolan's, Dangled over the door to a shanty of an office behind which a tangle of crooked mass stuck up like jackstraws out of a jam of crusty hulks. I pulled into the curb across the street from the place and started to get out when the office door opened, and a man who looked something left over from Moby Dick stepped out, headed across in my direction. As he passed in front of my car, I got a good look at the butt of the homemade cigarette, drooping over a jaw as heavy as the end of an anchor it was rolled with brown paper. Odds on, it had to be Jug Nolan. When he swung on down the street and finally went into a bar, I followed. Ah. Hey, Sweet,
5: do it again, huh? Be
10: right with you, Jug. Well, snap to it, I gotta get...
5: Well, what do you make of it, mate? Something biting you? Not exactly, Jug. I was just
1: wondering how well you're acquainted with Lola Demarest. Demarest?
5: Yeah. Well enough to know she's got vinegar in her veins instead of blood. Why? The old crack plot something to you? No, not now.
1: She was my client earlier tonight. I'm a private detective. Name's Marlowe. Now, keep it. You were up to see her today. I'd like to know why. Go ask her. That's a little tough now. She's dead. Yeah? Well, better late than never, mate. Miss her, do you? I can stand the strain. What was your business with her? Boats. Sure it wasn't seahorses?
5: Don't talk bills to me, mate. I said boats. Two rusty, rotten scows covered with barnacles enough to sink them in another week. But to hear that old gal talk, you think each one was the Queen Mary. Hey, Swede! Yeah? Pour me that drink.
4: Okay, okay, Chuck. Here. Here, uh,
1: what's yours, mister? Scotch, Johnny Walker. Take them both out of this. No, you don't. I'll buy my own. And I'm tired of your questions, mate, so haul out. Here, Swede. Okay. Suit yourself. Maybe you can bear up on one more question, Nolan. For you, maybe it's easy. Who killed Paul Crater? What was that? Somebody put two bullets in Paul Crater in front door of his house. I just came from there. Oh, dead. If you're lying to me, mate, I'll tear you into Get your hands off, Jug. Why would I lie? Do the cops know who did it? Not yet, but they will. I'll find out about this and in a hurry. Slow down, Nolan. There's no rush. Wade is going to be dead a long time. I want to ask Get you... Get out something. of my way! Now look, Nolan, I said I wanted to... Never mind. Okay, Commodore, help yourself. Nolan's ponderous right fist was cocked when I changed my mind, but that wasn't what did it. Over his shoulder, I'd spotted a familiar face. Detective Lieutenant Matthews leaning at the end of the bar and studying his thumbnail intently. As Jug stamped past him and out the door, Matthews jerked the intriguing thumb at a thin, sandy man working a pinball machine, who suddenly lost all interest
13: in the game and left abruptly. And Matthews sidled down the bar toward me. Sorry to step on your heels there, Bill, but we found out that Nolan has two judgments against him for assault. He's got a very dangerous temper, it seems. Well, you saved me a split lip. Did you hear all of it? Enough to convince me that Chuck Nolan didn't do it, but we'll tag him just to play safe. Oh. Chances are he's heading for Crater's house now, which should just give me a good chance to go to his place and look around. Uh-huh. I'll see you, Marlon. Yeah, so long, Matthew.
1: Something else for you, mister? No, thanks, Swede. Unless you can tell me why so many surfside sailors grow van dykes. Ha, I wondered myself. Maybe it's to hide
10: those dirty collars, I don't know. Hey, <laughs>
13: that's sweet. Couldn't stand the city gap.
1: Hey, here's
10: one with a beaver now, mister. Why don't you ask him? Oh, it's not better. Come on,
13: come on let's go, sweet. Set me up some rye whiskers. Okay, whiskey. all
10: right. Say, Dusick, this fella here wants to know why you sailors go those chin whiskers. <laughs> yeah, let's skip what I'll tell you.
13: The has got to have something to do while he's away to spare time. But see, uh, don't take up too much space. Yeah, well, I guess it beats bike racing. I'll <laughs> see you, Dusick. Uh,
5: hey, wait, I what? want to tell you.
13: I went to town today
5: looking for nothing but
13: a change of scene in a chubby, blondie shirt. with see. And what happened? Yeah, well, that's yeah, fine. Some I... takes a look at my bed and thinks I'm a college professor doing research. I couldn't tell her out with a talk Yes, so well, the next I... The one runs for a life because she takes me for a judge. And after a that, judge? I'm just getting around Hey, wait a minute. Hold it, hold it, <laughs> it Dusick. Huh? You say judge? Skipper, Skip. Are you losing your rudder? Just the opposite.
1: You've given me an idea that'll work. And what? Two murders, a beautiful sneer and a missing seahorse. Ah. wild, but it's beginning to make some sense. So long, sailor. Ah. I checked Nolan's boatyard first, but his office shack was dark. So I drove hard back to 51 Monroe Place in the hope that Matthews had been right about Jug's destination. My ground to a stop I once again gave thanks for smart cops. Chuck Nolan was there, all the fight gone out of him as he stared without seeing it at the blood spot on the floor where Paul Crater had died I asked him one simple question the answer he grunted in three words without so much as looking up but it made everything fit And as I got to the phone I knew that whatever else he was the old sea dog was no liar It's Marlowe, Jill. Oh, I've
8: been waiting for this. What is it? Money or fun? All
1: depends. Now listen close. I've got to have some help right away. What's
5: wrong? Where are you,
1: Phil? It doesn't matter, but this does. Get hold of that friend of your stepmother's. What's her name? Uh, Bertie Lockfield. And both of you meet me at your stepmother's house as soon as you can make it. It's important, baby. Don't fail me.
12: Well, Yes, I understand you wanted our help in a big hurry. We rushed madly over I'm here. I'm sorry it I... took
1: longer to get here than I figured.
12: What do you want us to do,
1: Phil? Catch a thief and a killer. You see, I'm positive now that whoever got away with that jewel seahorse also held that pillar over Mrs. Demeris' face until she died and went on to kill Paul Crater in Surfside.
8: What? Two murders? Killers
1: have that advantage, baby. For one murder or a dozen, the price is the same.
8: Well, I don't understand, Marla. Does the second murder have something to do with my stepmother's death?
1: They follow like links in a chain, Jill. Lola Demarest called me at four. She was expecting a new lawyer at 4.30. When I got here at five, she was dead and the Jewel Seahorse was gone. However, the circumstances indicated that somebody who knew her had done the work.
12: Then you don't think the new lawyer was the one No, but
1: I do think the new lawyer came in, just as I did later through the open back door... Stood right over there and overheard the entire business.
12: Can you prove all this, Marlowe? Not yet. But if you found that new lawyer, you
5: could.
1: Right. That new lawyer's gonna turn up soon, and when she does, we'll have something more. Yeah, she. She, Bertie. Lola Demarest's new lawyer is a woman. A woman? The distinguished man in suit and Van Dyke that you shot and killed in (laughs) Surfside was the lady lawyer's brother, a seaman. You
8: mean Bertie
1: Yeah, Jill. The new lawyer who witnessed the whole thing decided to move in on it. Right, Bertie?
8: But it
12: was blackmail. I got a note in my mailbox from a lawyer named Crater accusing me and demanding money. And
1: since you were already in so deep, you figured another murder wouldn't matter. You got the lawyer's surfside address some way and went there. And that's why you stumbled, Bertie, over a suit of clothes and a beard.
0: Bertie,
12: you were Lola's best friend. You'll never understand, you fool. So Don't try. Bertie! Hey. Hey. Don't you try either, Marlowe. Make a move for your gun and I'll put a bullet in her back. Marlo. Lola Demarest's best friend. <laughs> I despised and hated her. The years I worked and slaved for that woman, pampering her, putting up with her sickness and her temper and her high handed ways. She owed me plenty for those years. When it came time to pay, the money went to you, your cheap little snip. You done nothing for her. You were getting everything. Stand still, Marlow. I came prepared, remember? So did I, Mrs. Zockfield.
14: Ellen Crater. Better drop it, Bertie. You're in the middle. Listen, we can still do business like you said in the note. Not now, sister. You forget three things. First, you tried to kill me. Second, you did kill my brother. Helen, you don't know what you're doing. And third, the female of the species is always deadlier than the male.
1: <laughs> well, Matthews, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think will happen to Helen Crater?
13: No, that's one I don't have to figure out. Yeah, well, she's a
1: lawyer, you know. Say, so by the she way, Phil, could...
13: oh. how did you find out she was
1: the lawyer? Oh, that. Well, you see, the fact that the new lawyer was nowhere around bothered me. Uh-huh. And when I was in that bar in Surfside, one sailor with a beard told me he'd been mistaken for a judge. <laughs> so I figured maybe another sailor also with a beard could have been mistaken for a lawyer. And you uh, worked back from that? Yeah. Paul Crater's sister, Helen... I finally asked Nolan what Helen Crater did for a living. He told me. You see, he was the guy who had recommended Helen in the first place. He'd come to see Lola about the boats Uh and found out that she needed a lawyer, right? That's right. So he tossed some business to Paul Crater's sister. That's how the phone number came on brown cigarette paper. You know, I found it on the sun porch.
5: Well, that's it.
13: Yeah. Well, you gonna get some coffee?
1: No, no, thanks, Matthews. I'm quite tired.
0: No.
2: I think I'll go home. It
1: was almost three in the morning. A silent, sterile hour at the short end of a long, long night. Everything that happened had been because of a jeweled seahorse... An ugly little replica of an ugly little fish. But then, as I thought about it, I realized that the trouble wasn't because of the seahorse. It was because of the people. Bertie Lockfield, Helen Crater, Lola Demarest. Hm. That's always the trouble. People. Yeah. To coin a cliché, it takes all kinds of people to louse up the world... <coughs>
2: Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and written by Norman MacDonald, and written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Stan Waxman, and Morrison, Ruth Parrott, Eileen Prince, Ed Begley, John Stevenson, and Bob Sweeney. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says...
1: This time all I had to go on was a postmark, but that was plenty. It led me to a knife between a pair of shoulders, a woman with a secondhand face, and a corpse by a water wheel.
2: There'll be some grand singing on CBS this Wednesday night. Bing Crosby will play host to Al Jolson and Ella Fitzgerald, and Burns and Allen will entertain lovely Dinah Shore. Also, Groucho Marx will be around with more of his wonderful wit on his quiz, You Bet Your Life. And, of course, Dr. Christian will be on hand with another famous story. They'll all be heard on most of these same CBS stations, so be listening. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Pursuit, which follows immediately over many of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, where Wednesday night is Bing Crosby night, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: That wraps it up for tonight's show at 1001 Radio Grime Solvers. We really enjoy Good Reviews, So when you have a chance, say something nice about a selection of shows, or maybe suggest some to us. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.